On this episode of the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International, our guest is David Giles, the director of Church Catalyst. You will be inspired and challenged by David's stories of being a TCK in Ethiopia, about having parents that modeled what it looks like to live on purpose for Jesus, and the power of the gospel to transform lives and communities today as well as decades into the future. Welcome to the Fellowship. Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International. I'm your host, Jake Moore, and I am joined today by David Giles, the director of Church Catalyst for Christian Missionary Fellowship. David, welcome to the Fellowship Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jake. It's good to be back. Man, it's it's great to have you on today on this episode of the Fellowship Podcast. And what I'm particularly excited about is that this isn't going to be what we have done in the past in talking about strategic aspects of the ministries of CMF, or even talking about things like the spiritual disciplines, this is actually a time where we're going to talk about you. And I like you and I like your stories and I like your life stories. So I'm excited to highlight for the CMF fellowship for the greater family of CMF, your life and your ministry with CMF. Um, And you have kind of a unique uh, story I think for the CMF family to share, because not only did you serve as a missionary in Kenya, and not only are you currently the director of Church Catalyst mm-hmm. uh, for CMF, but you were a missionary kid. You are a third culture kid uh, coming up uh, here uh, with CMF. And I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic for you to get to share uh, with the greater CMF family as well. So I'm excited about this episode, and I really appreciate you coming on uh, today and being a part of this with me. Yeah, it's, it's good. I guess I feel a little bit like that Toby Keith song, I want to talk about me. So this is going to be all about me today. <laughs> Just <Yeah>. today. <laughs> you know, this will be our one uh, shot, and then after this, you'll never get to talk about yourself again. But hey. Well, this is probably going to be more about God's faithfulness in spite of everything. It's probably yeah. more what it's going to be. Yeah, so. I like that. I like that. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Well, before we jump into early years and being a missionary kid and your family's calling to serve in Ethiopia, I'd love to talk just real briefly about Church Catalyst, mm-hmm. about CMF's strategic area of ministry, the Church Catalyst Ministries. Um, could you share a little bit about that? Where, where are we serving uh, styles of ministry and what do, what exactly does Church mm-hmm. Catalyst mean? Yeah, um, I think Church Catalyst, that term was chosen because in some places we're doing church planting. In most places, however, we're a catalyst for church planting, mm-hmm. either by initiating in a new pioneer area or partnering with uh, Christians who are already there for, you know, ongoing church planting. And of course, the core goal is we want to make disciples who make disciples. We want to see church planting movements. Uh, we want to um, uh, plant the church in a way that'll grow naturally and multiply without us having to, you know, make it happen per se, if you could use that terminology. And uh, there's about 12 different fields that I work with, along with the assistant director, Greg Coley. Um, and the lines get a little bit blurred because really, Jake, within every strategy area of CMF, we were about making disciples and we're about making disciples who make disciples. Mm -hmm. And so whether it be businesses, mission and creative access places, whether it be global scope, uh, whether it be urban poor, you know, it's how do we make disciples in those contexts? Um, And also then within church catalyst, we're, it's not just people standing up with the Bible and preaching. I mean, we've got medical work, we've got development work. It's all of those things like, what do we do in order to uh, facilitate or be a catalyst for church planting holistically along with community transformation? And yeah. so uh, some, sometimes the lines get blurred, but, but those are the things we focus on. And then the I think the one thing that's good is the strategy areas serve as resources for each other mm-hmm. in our areas. And I'm able to talk with the other strategy areas and things about church planting. And they talk to me about things that have to do with business, holistic development, uh, campus ministry, and things like that. Yeah. 
Well, I'm grateful for your leadership over Church Catalyst. Your leadership over Church Catalyst mirrors my service with CMF. Uh, you helped Aaron and I get recruited by CMF and affiliate as an organization or with the organization. Mm -hmm. And then you were our strategic area director as we stepped into service in Ethiopia as a part of a church catalyst team there. So yeah. I'm grateful for you, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys are easy. I mean, you guys are rock stars. I just really appreciate, you know, your willingness to, to go and, and your investment in language. And then, uh, you know, the, the wisdom of deciding to go to Yasso first and really you know, lay a foundation. And then at Yomp, I think that foundation was seen to, to be a good foundation for, for building and we're still seeing good fruit from that. So yeah. Uh, Amen. You guys, you well, guys are easy ones. <laughs> at least now in hindsight, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe not in the midst of it all, but <laughs> uh, Jake, it's always fun with you. That's what I say. <laughs> there we go. That's, that's a nice way of saying it. you're a party waiting to happen, man. That's right, dude. That's right. Well, okay. You mentioned already, uh, we've already mentioned Ethiopia. You mentioned Yasso, mm -hmm. a place where that is near mm -hmm. and dear to my family and where we serve. But it's also a place that is near and dear to you and mm -hmm. your family and the legacy of your parents' service and faith uh, to mm -hmm. following Jesus. Uh, your parents are Ray and Effie Giles, who are CMF Emerit Emeritus or Emeriti. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I forget mm -hmm. how they, you were supposed to say it, but mm -hmm. Ray and Effie Giles were longtime missionaries uh, of CMF and served with the organization as missionaries in Ethiopia, but also uh, in the home office doing mobilization style roles. I think it was recruitment more uh, at that time is what it was uh, focused on. But they weren't just a young couple that right out of college stepped into the mission service that was not on their radar, if I remember correctly. So I'd love for you mm -hmm. to paint a picture a little bit about where your family was, what you were doing mm -hmm. as a kid here in the United States, and get us into the story of how you guys got plugged in with missions and Christian Missionary Fellowship. <laughs> yeah, I was just a little kid in North, North Carolina, uh, probably six or seven years old when uh, first introduced. Uh, but mm -hmm. my dad was a preacher uh, in North Carolina, Greenville, North Carolina, but always had a real sensitivity to uh, what God was doing in the world. And he mm -hmm. actually initiated the communication with CMF. Um, you know, first of all, how can we support missionaries? And this was in the early days of CMF. Mm -hmm. um, but then later, you know, what um, was challenged, well, why don't you go? Um, but the, th the other thing was, um, as he was a preacher in North Carolina, his sensitivity to those who did not have the gospel uh, mm -hmm. was was there as well. For example, um, we had an African-American couple that lived family that lived down the street from us. She was our first babysitter. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, the story is, too, that uh, she would come and um, and I would always go with her to the to the grocery store, riding mm -hmm. in the mule cart. You know, she had a mule riding cart. in a mule cart in a mule cart. And my mom told me, don't you go to the store with Miss Mary anymore. So I would go down there and get in the mule cart. But when we we're going by our house, I would lay down on the back of the wagon. So mom couldn't <laughs> see me. And we would go to the uh, grocery store and she would buy me Cracker Jack. This is a poor, poor family mm -hmm. and buy me Cracker Jacks. And the guy who ran the store, it was just an African-American store. Well, whose boy is that? Well, that's the preacher's boy, you know. <laughs> um, but my dad initiated a, an outreach into an African-American community. And mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of pushback. In fact, mm. uh, the Klan was active back then. Um, and they burned a cross in our yard. But the way my parents what? acted, they drug that. They, they burnt the cross. And you could see where it fell, but they drug it out in the woods and said nothing about it. I remember seeing the wow. charred cross and everything, and they said nothing about it. They said, the Klan does this to get attention. They're not going to get any attention from us. Mm. And they just kept going in ministry. And the, my dad wow. uh, said, too, that someone had uh, had offered. Actually, my mom told me this story because my dad just didn't do stuff, you know, tell stories like that, but <laughs> that someone had offered 50 bucks to anybody that would come and beat my dad up. Oh my so gosh. He, he found out who it was and he called him up and said, why don't you save your money and come over here yourself and work this out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is. Uh, awesome. but, you know, I tell these stories because it, it was a part of who they were as mm -hmm. people. Um, 
And so then uh, they had indicated an interest in CMF and uh, actually Doug Priest Sr. who passed away recently, who's mm-hmm. been kind of a aunt and uncle to Linda and I, uh, aunt, uh, uh, uncle to Linda and I, Doug and Marge were aunt and uncles mm-hmm. um, and grandparents to our kids, you know, over the years. Yeah. Uh, he came through raising support to go to Ethiopia and he said, well, why don't you go? And mm. um, like go and serve alongside him. Yeah. And <laughs> go in his stead. <laughs> uh, so I was probably about six at that time. Yeah. And these are before the days, you know, where you sit down with the family, you know, well, David, what do you think about going to Ethiopia? It's just kind of, like, hey, we're going to Ethiopia. And so we uprooted, moved to uh, California. This is when the School of mm-hmm. World Mission had just started up. Donald McGavran uh, was there. That was my second grade year for my, um, for my dad to spend a year at School of World Mission. And then by the time I was in the third grade, eight years old, we were headed to Ethiopia. And um, then the story unfolds from there. Wow. So, and prior to that, had they gone to Milligan? Is that correct? Your dad? Yeah, he started out Roanoke Bible College and just saw that, you know, this isn't, sorry, any Roanoke Bible people out there, (laughs) you know, that he said, I think I'm going to get better preparation from Milligan for the direction I want to go with life and Mm -hmm. ministry. So he Mm -hmm. switched over to Milligan College. And um, then um, Emmanuel wasn't in existence then. So then mm-hmm. he went to Southern Baptist Seminary in, in Louisville and preached mm-hmm. in a church there for a while. Mm-hmm. Were you actually born there in Louisville and then then you took on the, the role in uh, North Carolina? I was born in Frankfort, Kentucky, <clears throat> the capital Frank- of the uh-huh. state. Yeah. Uh-huh. There may even wow. be a sign by the freeway. David Giles yes, was born here. Loyal Daughters Hospital. six years old this stuff is all starting to go on where doug pre senior comes through says hey why don't you go and serve with us not go serve in my stead but go serve with us in ethiopia your family first makes a move to california but it's not just you right you had some siblings too so maybe let's flesh Mm -hmm. out the picture of what what your family looked like even at that point when you were six years old and stepping into this mission service thing Mm-hmm. I was the youngest of four kids. Um, so there was four of us that kind of mm-hmm. uprooted and moved. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so it was really a lot of, um, a lot of transition and upheaval. So yeah. So it, two older sisters and then a younger and an older brother. Yeah, that's right. right? And, um, and so what's, mo- was, I mean, it's shocking to think about moving to another country, but I would think mm-hmm. it would be shocking to move to the opposite end of the United States as well. Like, it's like it's a, a stair step to 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 change yeah. and service overseas. Yeah, going from North Carolina over to California, <laughs> that was quite a jump. I remember driving across the U.S., pulling this little trailer in a car with no air conditioning, going through the desert, and it was so hot that the stuff we had on the back of the car, like crayons, just melting and everything. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. But, you know, you just... You just did it. You know, that was yeah. in the days where, you know, it's, hey, you do it. It just happens. That's and right. You, it and you adjust yeah. to it, you know. So then after your dad did his year uh, at the uh, School of World Missions, what did the next year to two years look like? Like, was he raising support during that time while he was in California in preparation to Ethiopia? Or were there a couple of years of support raising prior to to heading out no the support came in pretty quickly because i remember going to california and then pretty much coming back out east and then flying out for ethiopia pretty much that summer it would have been of 68 i guess Mm -hmm. so um next thing you know i'm over in ethiopia going to good shepherd school for the first six months as a day student Mm -hmm. and that accelerated so quickly in language that actually after six months of language, they transferred him to Tose, you know where that's uh-huh, at. Uh-huh. And and then I went to boarding school. So I was probably eight, almost nine when I went into boarding school. Wow. Uh, and yeah, let's let's give a time frame historically here. You said summer of nineteen sixty eight is when your family moved to Ethiopia. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then fall of sixty eight is when you started at Good Shepherd School. Yeah, started out in uh, 
Yeah, the fall and then boarding school spring. In the spring. Same school. Wow. But yeah, same school. Day student to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to in the dorm. So you're, t- tell us, do you remember much? I mean, you're eight by that point. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what's your head? Like, is your head just spinning with? life changes or is it like no um, i rode i rode mule carts in virginia or i mean in north carolina yeah. and i ride in mule carts here in ethiopia like we're there's similarities to addis ababa at the time to life in rural north carolina to where it didn't feel too shocking or different or was it like head spinning even as an eight-year-old big changes yeah. um i don't remember head spinning and there's really something that craig and allison said that i've seen in in the last podcast that i've really seen mm-hmm. true is where the parents go, the kids go. And I'm mm-hmm. not just talking about physically, I'm talking about mentally, emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I think my parents had a way of doing a couple of things. One is wherever we were, that was home. They made mm-hmm. it home, they made it homely. And and even though they were very obviously caught up with God and his mission, and that was at the forefront, it was mm-hmm. never in a way that set us aside. I mean, it was difficult, I mean, not easy. But the fact is you take the easy path in life, you know, and, and you, you get what that pays out. But uh, they they lived for on purpose, and mm-hmm. then you know I kind of felt like we were caught up in that purpose. Mm-hmm. And and I'm speaking for myself. I can't speak for my siblings because some of them right. probably don't see it exactly <laughs> the same way. But because they were teenagers, I, and- <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I don't think head spinning. We went to school, and I remember uh, the area of town we lived in. Some of it was good, but some of there was some really really rabash duries around there, little street boys. <laughs> and I remember you know, getting in a few skirmishes with them and stuff like that, but it's not, it was just kind of like, that's what happened, you know, Mm -hmm, you just mm -hmm. uh, dealt with it and moved on. And, and once we moved, this is getting a little bit further on, but once we were, you know, located down country, really Mm -hmm. good Ethiopian friends learned I'm just playing with Ethiopian friends. So Mm -hmm. just learned how to be in there with the rest of them and holding our own, you know, yeah. and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Well, I think too, what's fascinating to me, uh, thinking about you, it, it, with someone listening to this episode, they're going to think, oh yeah, Ethiopia, and they're going to, their mind's going to go maybe to modern day Ethiopia, or that might even be marked by, if you're a Gen Xer, by the famine in Ethiopia. Um, but you went at a fascinating time in history. Ethiopia was still a kingdom at that time. And yeah. and Haile Selassie was the mm-hmm. king. He was the emperor over Ethiopia. He is mm-hmm. he was Rastafari, where we get mm-hmm. Rastafari, the religion, and yeah. everything else mm-hmm. in Jamaica. But man, can you highlight some aspects of even that world? What what did it look like in Ethiopia <laughs> yeah. as a kingdom, mm-hmm. um, as a country, or and, and even around the capital city? Did you ever see the king? Uh, did you have any interactions yeah. like that? Yeah, I remember seeing Haile Selassie one time. I was actually out on the road, you know, the road between Makanisa and Good Shepherd at that time mm-hmm. was just totally deserted. And I remember he he used to do this thing about driving around in one of his many cars and he would hand out, uh, you know, dollar bills. And uh-huh. I remember one time he pulled up, rolled down his window and there was Haile Selassie right there, you know. Um, wow. But it was a, it was really a fascinating time to be there, um, and um, I, I think I actually think um, a lot of what he did and the people close to him did really have a strong benevolence aspect to it. Mm-hmm. In other words, he was emperor, but I think there was a more benevolent aspect to his uh, rule than some people give him credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Disalba then uh, was uh, yeah it was a sort of a modern city but you get out of Addis Ababa and um, incredibly un- underdeveloped the only way to get out to you know where we worked was by small aircraft um, and and going places where and, you know you hear people tell stories well I went and they never seen white people before well they've probably seen a lot of white people yeah but we went places where they hadn't seen white people before yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, just a lot of um, a lot of those good experiences. Yeah. So you're spring of 69. You are in boarding school and your parents are assigned by the CMF Church Catalyst team, the church planting team to a place called Tose. 
mm-hmm. which is not with the the group that they ended up serving mm-hmm. in Yaso. That was with the Oromo people, um, which is a different language group than than Amharic, the national mm-hmm. language that your dad became quite proficient in. Mm-hmm. So could you highlight it from, I mean, I know you're a kid at that point, but can you highlight a little bit, even maybe in hindsight of like, why did CMF ask them to go to Tose mm-hmm. and, and what, what did ministry look like for your family in those days? You mentioned flying in by aircraft. Uh, that mm-hmm. That's fascinating to think about. And I'd love to highlight some of those things too. Yeah. Um, you know, being a part of a team, you know, the first thing is what, what are the team needs? And so when we got there, uh, Rex and Donella Jones were going on furlough and they lived at Tose and they needed someone to go to Tose. So my parents agreed to go there. Um, and dad did most of his work in Amharic and then worked on learning Oromifa while he would work through an Oromo translator. Mm-hmm. And, and really some of that was formative for me because um, whenever we were home from boarding school, um, I, ju- I just loved to go with my dad no matter what he did. And so um, what he found is that a lot of times people were home in the evening. So just about every evening he had a Bible study in, in a village mm-hmm. in someone's mm-hmm. home and I'd go with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we would go on these long tracks, you know, event, he would hear there's a place that doesn't have the gospel. And my dad was the type that would throw on a backpack and go with very bare bones. <laughs> he never <laughs> took anything with us and drag yeah. along eight or nine year old kid, you know, that's walking <laughs> for, I mean, I'm talking days. We're talking walking seven or eight hours a day and be gone for wow. three or four days, only eating what they gave us in the village. Uh, that's awesome. And he, and but it turned out to be, you know, it was almost like a, you know, uh, very biblical in that we went and we relied on those villages. For yeah. space. And it's very uh, much like Jesus sending out the 72, find your person yeah. in peace and eat what they give you. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so what that ended up doing is it was kind of formative for me. And that, first of all, seeing the needs around the world, we were going places where they absolutely never heard the gospel before mm-hmm. and, and had, didn't have access to even basic resources they needed. Um, and it was also formative in terms of how to do ministry. Yeah. Um, and that, um, you know, we would go different places and dad would do teaching and preaching and all that. But he said his most formative time was going with Ethiopian leaders and he was discipling them as they went. It's kind of like that book, you know, Three Mile an Hour God, talking about Jesus walked places yeah. and he developed people as he went along. And so, yeah, churches were planted in, in other areas, but leaders were discipled because he was doing that as he walked mm-hmm. along and did life mm-hmm. with them uh, in that way. And so that was kind of formative um, to me. Then again, uh, then Don and, uh, Don and Beth Alice Johnson went on furlough and needed mm-hmm. someone to fill in at Haro. Mm-hmm. So then we moved over to Haro and, and that's where we were. And then the team asked them to be a part of pioneering the work into the Gumus. At that time, they were called the Shankala. And then mm-hmm. later, uh, there was another name for it, um, mm-hmm. Kaza and then mm-hmm. Gumus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found out yeah. that they were called Shankala by the Oromo, but that meant slave. So right. And so that's when Yasso started. I remember walking into Yasso for the first time. You know, wow! This would this would have been even one of those places where you were gone for three or four days, like walk yeah. down down the mountain yeah. range. So you're just to paint a picture a little bit. It, the Tose Haro are up on this almost like a plateau on really mm-hmm. high mountains, and then the Shankala Kaza people who are actually known as Gumus, that's what they mm-hmm. call themselves, were down in yeah. this big valley area. Mm-hmm. And so you guys trekked down the mountains into this valley, mm-hmm. this bamboo forest, uh, and to meet these these people who you had heard yeah. about but maybe never engaged with. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would have been like mom stays at home, so she's up in Haro. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and you would just walk with dad for four days or more out into the woods and not know anything about what's yeah. going on back home. And she had no clue what you guys were doing. Yeah. So by this time, I probably would have been like probably 12 or 13 because we'd been at Tose filling in. Rex and Donella didn't come back. Mm-hmm. So we filled in there till Chapman's got there. And then Taharo, you know, till Johnson's came back and then mm-hmm. to Yasso. But yeah, I remember walking down and, uh, you know, and people are just looking, who are these white people? Mm-hmm. And you sit down and you just be surrounded by 
people of every age who are running their finger. I used to have hair back then, fingers <laughs> through your hair, hair on your arm, just kind of yeah. like, who are these people? And it, yeah. was just, yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Know? Of course, yeah. by then I'd been there a while, knew I'm Herrick, you know, mm -hmm. and, and everywhere we went, um, you know, when we go on these tracks, uh, dad wouldn't carry food, but we'd always carry a shotgun or a rifle. And sometimes <laughs> we'd have to provide for, you know, ourselves. And that was kind of fun as a young yeah. kid, you know, being able to do that. Now, it's that cool. is a different world than every single one of our mission teams to have a rifle that you have to get forage and find food with. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that is, that I've is got a lot different. of stories about that, but we don't have time for that <laughs> yeah. today. So. Oh, wow. That is amazing. How though, okay, you're, you're up in this other tribal area with the Oromo people. You guys have this desire to reach out to the Gumus people who were these slaves for the Highlanders mm -hmm. at different points. So mm -hmm. I'm, I imagine like there's bad blood. And I know mm -hmm. even now, historically from my own ministry and just what's going on within the country of Ethiopia in the present day, there's, there's a lot of ethnic tension, but mm -hmm. I would think that would have been heightened at that time, especially if their name was, mm -hmm. Hey, slaves, our slaves. Mm -hmm. How did you guys bridge that gap? Well, I, I think it, it probably highlights the power of the gospel and where the church steps uh, in, yeah. but could you walk us through mm -hmm. some of that and what you remember as a kid and how the, how the CMF team navigated mm -hmm. coming from one people group, that were the slaveholders mm -hmm. of another people people group. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, you know, we tend to think in terms of let me use a big word here, cultural imperialism only happening from, you know, um, those coming in completely from the outside, like missionaries coming in and working with ethnic groups there. But there's a strong level of cultural imperialism that happens, you know, when like you Oromo to Gumus. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there weren't any Gumus believers. So uh, in terms of, um, you know, some of the translation that needed to be done, it used to go like from Amharic to Oromo to Gumus. So find the Gumus that spoke Oromo. And then so um, initially there were some Oromo involved, but they were Oromo believers. And like you said, the transforming power of the gospel later on, there's some powerful stories mm -hmm. of Gumus protecting Oromo and vice versa. Wow. Um, but the goal was in, uh, to, you know, in the initial stages, using some Oromo to communicate, but to raise up leaders from within as soon as possible so that mm -hmm. the leadership within the Gumus church would be Gumus mm -hmm. and that the approach and the style, um, for example, um, the Gumus would go work out in the field every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, daytime was not a good time to teach, but then every evening they would come, they would go and work and they lived very communally. So they would go yeah. work in one man's field. And then that night they would go to his house and have a dubbo where they would drink kea, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, you yeah, know, the homemade, kea. the homemade low alcohol content beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so my dad thought, well, rather than create a new meeting, why don't I just go to the Dubbo and we'll drink Kea with them. So here at you know, 12 and 13, I'm drinking Kea around the, <laughs> around the fire, you know, and that became the primary teaching time. And then later uh, it became a you know, primary meeting time where instead of hearing them sing, you know, these traditional songs about who knows what they were singing Christian songs, um, you know, to traditional tunes and then eventually they moved more toward a Sunday service. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and I'm not saying that because, oh, that's a great transition. But you see over time, they made a transition toward, you know, Sunday service, fellowshipping yeah. together under Gumbu's leadership. You mentioned Craig and Allison um, and their ministry with the, the Gumbu's people in Ethiopia and that we had done a podcast with them. That's who we worked with as well. Um, and in that episode with Craig and Allison, they highlighted the practice of chronological Bible storing. Uh, and so I just would be intrigued to know at that time, what did these gatherings look like for your dad? Would he highlight a, a story from scripture, um, especially working uh, still within a language group that uh, doesn't have the written word. How, mm -hmm. how did that look? Was it story oriented thought, like kind of running thought oriented, got just strictly 
it wasn't just strictly gospel presentation because you got to lay a, a groundwork. So I'd be yeah, interested absolutely. to know yeah, <clears throat> what that looked like. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes when you jump in and just immediately start and talking about Jesus, we don't realize there needs to be a foundation because mm -hmm. who is this God we're going to be reconciled to? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so my dad was a learner. He started learning gumus immediately, including the stories, worldview, and things like that. And so it was more looking for, you know, redemptive analogies and cultural bridges, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, to use some of the mythological terms. You know, what are some things within their yeah. culture that make natural illustrations and bridges for the gospel and, and using those? And so when going to Davos, you know, he might, you know, tell a, tell a story and then add, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, link it to a biblical truth, mm -hmm. you know, to show, uh, show them culturally, he's learning about them. He's learning about their culture and some of their perspective by sharing one of their stories, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then on from there, you know, as you see leaders then start to emerge, then you begin to focus more on those leaders. And that's when you move more into just biblical teaching, maybe going through a particular book or particular, mm -hmm. particular mm -hmm. topic and, and equipping leaders, but in the initial contact and meetings, it's it's more how do how do how does the gospel engage them right where they are in a yeah. way that that they can understand and and connect with, and they were animistic, which you, mm -hmm. you know understand. And walking into every village, there would be a little house that would be built, you know, to offer sacrifices to the spirits. So any any teaching would need to be geared toward uh, you know strongly animistic context. Yeah, and I, I recall that the mountain of Yaso Yaso Mountain was also a point of prayer uh, as well. And I believe so. so. So it wasn't that concepts of worship or prayer were foreign to the Gumus people, unlike mm -hmm. maybe some other contexts. But it was who are you praying to? Who are you worshiping? Who are you living mm -hmm. and following? Uh, and so then helping reframe that, uh, it sounds like, mm -hmm. okay. So how many years was that first term of service for your family? What did that look like mm -hmm. when you're in boarding school, you're doing mm -hmm. Ose, Haro, and then you're talking about getting, beginning outreach with the Gumus. Mm -hmm. Are you guys there solid for four years, 10 years? Like how, mm -hmm. how did, what did that look like? And did you ever come back to the United mm -hmm. States? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did a four-year first term and then a year furlough and then a two-year term with a summer furlough and then went back and wrote it out until the communists took over for a total of about eight or nine years in there. Um, what's funny is my mom tells a story when, when we were getting ready to go to Ethiopia, you know, I, I said, do you mean we have to go over there and waste all my young time over in Ethiopia? <laughs> and then when it came time to go on furlough, I said, why do we have to go to the States and waste a whole year? I want to stay here. <laughs> so uh, how quickly um, you had made the switch, man. Yeah. And, and it really was good. And even boarding school for me was when I say a good experience, I don't want to gloss over the incredible difficulty of it. You understand that from a parent that sent kids yeah. and you probably yeah. understand that from interacting with your own kids. Um, but a positive experience for me and, yeah. um, an incredible blessing that some still to this day, some of my dorm parents, I would name them as key people in my own personal and spiritual development. Paul and Emma Lehman, Bob and Betty Wright, just really, really good folks. Many people that know you now uh, know that you're big time into motorcycles. <laughs> uh, but when you were um, a six-year-old kid, you're riding a mule cart. You're not riding motorcycles. When did no. motorcycles come along your path as suddenly a, a point of interest and then a passion? Well, actually, it was about eight years old. We were at Tose, and Doug Priest Sr., uh, mm -hmm. Uncle Doug, had this old Honda 50 he didn't use anymore, and he brought it over, and we started riding on that. And, you know, sometimes people say, man, are you stuck in a midlife crisis or whatever? So I may be, but it started when I was eight years old and it isn't over yet. So if that's the middle yeah, I'm doing. Yeah, okay. I think it's, it, and, and it grew from there because dad then uh, bought a bike secondhand and started using that. And then he bought another bike mm -hmm. uh, and he just used them going to the village. There was no roads, but you could kind of make a way through with a dirt bike. And mm -hmm. 
that ignited it from my brother and I, and yeah. we've never, we've never gotten over it. And I don't <laughs> think we will. So. Yeah, you never will, huh? And so that even meant like at boarding school, didn't you have a bike too? Did you have a yeah, motorcycle? Yeah, I did. I yeah. saved all my money and bought one. And as soon as I could get uh, an Ethiopian driver's license, boarding school was pretty lax. So <laughs> 16, I had this motorcycle and boom, take off, go to town, drive all through Addis Ababa. You know, oh, man. Yeah. that I is either, truly... I can either confirm or deny any other things about that, except that, <laughs> yeah, not much traffic. It was just a lot of fun ripping around town. Oh, time. man, I, I can imagine it is fun to ride a motorcycle. One, it's fun to ride a motorcycle in Ethiopia. I can testify mm -hmm. to that, but I can't even imagine what it would have been like back in those days where minimal mm -hmm. amounts of vehicles on the roads, uh, and you just mm -hmm. ripping up. Ripping up the town on a bike. That sounds pretty, yeah. pretty amazing, man. So I'd like to one talk about like, okay, th with that first term, when you guys started looking in into actually moving into the area where the gumus were, what did that look like? Um, and mm -hmm. when did that happen? Was that at the end of the first term or going into the second mm -hmm. term? But then even the rhythm of life and ministry for your family you're at boarding school mm -hmm. how often did you actually physically see your parents mm -hmm. things like that would be interesting but i think they kind of mm -hmm. all overlap so can you help us understand a little bit about okay you're doing outreach but at what point did you guys get down and decide we're going to actually establish a life mm -hmm. in this place and then kind of touching then on school and okay and, and everything else would be interesting to me well, as far as Yasso goes, there were the first exploratory trips going in mm -hmm. uh, and seeing is there an openness, other people of peace. And at that time, it was Obogobana that was a person of peace. Mm -hmm. And so um, so then um, uh, going down and making a clearing near one of the, the rivers, it's a clearing actually in the house where, where you guys actually lived as well. Mm -hmm. And for the first probably... 12 to 18 months living in a tent. There was a kitchen tent that we had, and then there mm -hmm. was a um, sleeping tent. Mm -hmm. And um, so, which was always interesting uh, for a number of reasons. One is there are quite a few wild animals around there. Including well, dude, snakes. I was going to, I was going to yeah. ask like, what kind of animals did you guys have run-ins with? I, I feel like I hear, yeah. I've heard a story of, uh lions at night but i'm sure there was all kinds of other stuff that you guys yeah hear, hearing lions at night but no close encounters there mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so i think animals had more close encounters with us because we could hunt and all that than <laughs> the other way around um yeah. and uh and then built a bamboo house and we we called it the 10 ton basket you know and that's where mm -hmm. we live there is a, a main house where there was kind of my parents um no actually it was just uh dining and living room and and uh, then they we had a separate bamboo house for a bathroom separate bamboo house for my parents mm -hmm. separate bamboo office for my brother and i because at that time my, my sisters had graduated mm -hmm. um and they of, had had moved on to the united states mm -hmm. and pursuing yeah. college and other things yeah donna was there for a while though um so there was uh, another little house where donna stayed and then um yeah, she she then went back to college. But like you uh, said, it's not house houses. Like people might be hearing this and be like, no. oh, they have like five houses. We're talking like eight by eight rooms that are yeah. made out of bamboo yeah. and that stand, kind of stand alone and mm -hmm. like all clustered right next to each other. So not yeah, not very big really spaces. Small. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we mean by houses, mm -hmm. not not your own little manor out there on the woods. Yeah. And bathing <laughs> in the river. My brother and I always just bathe in the river. You know, it was kind of interesting. Sometimes people would gather. We didn't care. You know, so we'd go to, <laughs> go to a fairly remote place and bathe in yeah. the, make sure there was no snakes around first or monitor yeah. lizards, which there always was. And then yeah. Yeah, um, give give then, people a show usually at, at some point. <laughs> and then, in terms of uh, the rhythm of boarding school, um, it was on a semester system, so we would go to school probably August, stay through mid December, go home for Christmas. We usually wow. had like three weeks for Christmas, then we would go home for Easter. We had a two week, one to two week break then, and then there'd be a summer like three months. Man. And then I would usually see my parents one time between August and December. There's usually a CMF team meeting. Mm -hmm. And then the, the second semester, of course, we would go home for Easter. And so yeah. I usually wouldn't see them at all. So 
Um, and, you know, the families would go and stay for months and months. And um, the supply chain was that if they needed something, they'd radio in. Tom Kirkpatrick mm-hmm. would buy it and send it out by MAF. Um, shout out to MAF. It was our mm-hmm. lifeline. Yeah. And um, so it was it was really bush living where you could get yeah. absolutely nothing. And, and when you say MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and at, after you guys cleared the space for the houses, the little huts, you cleared a landing strip. You made a landing that's strip first, uh, first in the thing. community. Yeah. yeah. And so that's how they would get those resupplies. So they're staying out there for three or four months, mm-hmm. not flying out by even having supplies mm-hmm. sent to mm-hmm. them. Uh, yeah. And mail would come in by MAF. Sometimes they would just drop mail up. You know, they would radio that they were there and they would circle around and drop the mail bag out and, <laughs> oh and, and hit the ground and go pick it up. That's funny crazy. story there. I mean, I've got so many stories. I don't want to call it. <laughs> They used to do that. The, the uh, currency was dumbbells or dimes back then. Yeah. You, nobody wanted paper money because it, yeah. you know, it might get bad. So sometimes if people needed money, they would drop a big bag of dimes, which would maybe weigh 20, 30 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Wrap it up in layers of burlap. And so you had to watch when they were if they were dropping a bag of dumbbells. I mean, you got out of the way. And one time they made a drop at Kirmu where Doug and March mm-hmm. Priest were in the the Dumbelows came down and they hit the ground and bounced and landed right on a dog and killed it. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, so. Holy cow. That's insane. Yeah. That's just a testament to how scary it could have been. Holy cow. Yeah. Oh man. Wow. That is One wild. So, ministry. Yeah. So then you're, you guys then not seeing each other physically. There's again, just to remind everybody, this is, pre-internet this is oh yeah you're doing only letters at that point like they're not even able Mm. to make satellite phone calls like this is just Mm -hmm. them sending letters back and forth and then i guess in those airdrops letters from you would be Mm -hmm. showing yeah and if there was an emergency you know we could let tom and wanda kirkpatrick know and they would radio out to my parents or parents Mm -hmm. radio back in but, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that my parents were really caught up in God and his mission. And, and I think in their framework, it was in light of our calling, how can we be the best parents we can possibly be? So, yeah. Um, for example, first few years when I was younger, my mom would prepare for that whole semester a gift every Friday that I would go down to my older sister. She would open up the mm-hmm. trunk and all of us would get a little gift. Mm-hmm. As just a reminder, and we'd get letters. She would send letters from our cat, letters from our dog, <laughs> uh, sending cookies. And so it wasn't, we're doing God's work and you guys right. are up here. It's, you know, we're all caught up in God's mission here. And you're very much in our minds and our hearts. But, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's tough, but we're going to yeah. do this because yeah. it's our purpose. That's all going on. That's a part of your life. It's a rhythm of your family. And you are a family on mission doing this. Even yeah, being at boarding school, like you said, it's not because it's mm-hmm. it's all about mom and dad. It's about how can we do ministry and outreach with the Oromo mm-hmm. and the Gumus. And this has mm-hmm. to be a facet of your experience and the family's experience. When did that furloughed fall and when did the actual like living in Yasso happened? Was that prior to you going on that first furlough that you mm-hmm. built, established the houses, the, you know, the small homes, uh, mm-hmm. little huts, or was that post post furlough? It was post furlough, uh, post furlough. We moved to Haro just for a brief amount of time that I got set up, got an airstrip. And of course, walking down, I've already mentioned doing that. So as soon as I could get an airstrip in and place to set up a tent post furlough, the transition was made to Yasso. That was about, who, 73, I believe. Okay. And then um, uh, we were able to, you know, then around 1974, the communist revolution began, but we we just kind of stuck through it. And then it wasn't until 1977 that, it was things were getting really, really tough in terms mm-hmm. of uh, really focused against Americans, missionaries being imprisoned and brought in for interrogation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what really kind of sealed the deal was they grounded 
Missionary Aviation Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And that was our lifeline. And right. so uh, the mission decided to um, evacuate in mass in one in one like in two days because if people left one by one they would take the head of the mission and put them in prison right so i'm at boarding school uh, most of the way through my junior year get a call let's say on a wednesday pack up on friday we're all out of here wow and say goodbye to all my classmates and everything and pack up with a suitcase is all we could take and getting on a plane and and out of there um due to the just the intense, uh, increasingly tense situation with uh, with the communist revolution. Yeah. So the revolution beginning in 74, um, you, you're, you're in Addis Ababa. Your parents are out in the woods, <laughs> out in the mm-hmm. middle of nowhere, uh, two-hour f- airplane flight, uh, you know, mm-hmm. physically very, very far from the capital. Did they get rumblings of the revolution occurring even out there? Or was it more like, okay, that's there's a kind of a coup occurring in the city, mm-hmm. but it's not affecting the rest of the country in the ways that we would maybe imagine it occurring mm-hmm. today. Yeah. I mean, out there, it was just rural life as usual. So if it had just been based on what was going on at Yasso, you know, not, 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 not that much. It was really centered more in the power centers. I decided being one of them, but, you know, being a kid, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, even thinking about it now, I, I just didn't think anything of it. My mom still has a letter that she said I, I, I would write and say, yeah, we heard gunfire. We heard tanks. Um, someone was shot just down the road. But it's really just kind of life as usual here. Nothing really to worry <laughs> about. You know, and she goes, she's going, ah, and I'm going, ah, you know, yeah, that's just, yeah. what's going on. You that's know? just Ethiopia, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, my goodness. Uh Wow. That's yeah. That's fascinating. And yeah, that your perspective was just that it's just life going on. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Well, thinking about your yourself as a third culture kid, as a missionary kid at that time, but you, what we're going to get into here, going into the, the next part of our, our time together is your service in Kenya. And then even now your service as Mm -hmm. the director of church catalyst, not only are you a third culture kid, not only were you a missionary kid that grew up on the mission field, you are a parent of third culture kids. Mm-hmm. You are you have your own missionary kids, mm-hmm. your children are missionary kids, and now you are a grandparent of missionary kids of TCKs. And and so and that's the hardest one right there, James. That's, yeah, that's the hardest one. <laughs> yeah, that's we miss our kids, but oh man, those grandkids. Uh, yeah, that's that's um, brutal. It's brutal. And thinking about that, I'd love to know kind of your words of advice to an eight-year-old well your eight-year-old self or an eight-year-old missionary kid Uh, i mean you've kind of already touched on that or even maybe looking mm -hmm. more like towards the teenage years that you can really remember Mm -hmm. and that are formative for you speaking to our current third culture kids out there Mm -hmm. or parents or even grandparents of some of our third culture kids that are here within the cmf family any anything you'd want to share with them about that, about your experience? Um, You know, again, like I said earlier, to me, it's just a testament of God's faithfulness. If you look back through it in the right perspective and the right eyes. And um, if we go through life thinking it's all about us, we're going to be disappointed. But if we go through life really believing in the mission of God, that he's using us in his time and his way for his purpose, and we look through those eyes, you know, there's just unmistakable, remarkable signs of his faithfulness along the way. Um, and it's going to be tough. I mean, if, if, if you're caught up in, in uh, if you're caught up in his mission and expect it to only be easy, I don't think we read the Bible accurately. Mm. And I don't think we understand his calling as much as we, as we should. And so, yeah, there's incredible difficulty, but there's also incredible things, um, you know, blessings along the way, experiences. Um, and, uh, you know, I've set my computer so that when it's at rest, these pictures flash up, you know, and I've got old ones in there from Ethiopia days that I put up there. And every time I'm just reminded of God's faithfulness. Yeah, there were difficult twists and turns, but God's accomplishing his purposes. And, you know, the the agricultural 
parables that Jesus told are just so telling. And that is that we have our part, you know, we, we plant, we water, and God makes it grow in his time. And sometimes we want to determine success based on that moment. But, you know, the parable of the weeds and the you know, wheat and the tares, he said, no, that's, that's my job. Don't you go out yanking weed, you know, give it time and, and looking at what God's been able to do over time to where, for example, in Ethiopia now in his rough beginnings where, you know, there was no gospel at all to now the Christos Andanet Church, the church is 150, 175 churches, I don't know. Uh, and the same would play out in Kenya, you know, some difficulties along the way. And now there's 300 community Christian churches there. And just looking at it from that perspective, I think is really helpful for me. Absolutely. Uh, truly phenomenal to think of the, the faithfulness of God and the legacy uh, of your families service uh in ethiopia and definitely i got to be a part of that and, and seeing what things look like mm -hmm. you know decades later and the ways that those seeds that were sown in mm -hmm. 1974 1975 mm -hmm. come to fruition not the next week or the next month but mm -hmm. decades later uh is i think a testament of yeah, god's faithfulness uh through the legacy of his people through his servants through his ministers of the gospel uh, and I, I am grateful for your parents uh, and the legacy uh, of faith that they have had with the gumus people but and also uh in and through you and your family and your siblings as well as uh, in my own life, uh, your your dad was a mentor uh, to mm -hmm. me and definitely instrumental in getting me <laughs> engaged and connected with CMF, informative in the ways that I thought about and approached my ministry mm -hmm. uh, with CMF and with the Gumu's people. And Effie uh, is very much a mentor. Uh, your mom mm -hmm. was very much a mentor to Aaron uh, over the years yeah. uh, and was extremely formative and her being a reach intern uh, and then getting us as yeah. a newly married couple uh, connected and engaged with CMF. Yeah, she's a powerhouse. She doesn't realize it. And I just keep saying, you don't, you don't realize it, mom, but you're, you're a powerhouse. But <laughs> she has so much influence on so many people, and I'm grateful for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Fellowship Podcast. Be sure to keep an eye out for the second part of my conversation with David Giles as we step into the next part of his story, looking at his ministry among the Maasai people of Kenya. Also, please take a second to like, review, and subscribe to the Fellowship Podcast so that more people can learn about what God has done and continues to do through CMF and our ministries around the world.